Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rorkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And we are back this week with a much darker <laughs> episode than normal. <laughs> I don't think our discussion will be that mortifying, but the movies we chose were somewhat interesting. So we each picked a movie from one of our favorite directors and had the other person watch a movie from them that they hadn't seen yet. So my pick was Prisoners by Denis Villeneuve that Sophia hadn't seen. And Sophia's pick for me was Three Women by Robert Altman. So we'll be diving into these movies today and then using this as an extension of our letterboxed episode that we did last year later this season. Yeah, so Altman for me is one of my highest rated directors where it's rare for me to find something that I don't like that he does. And I would say the same thing for you with Denis Villeneuve, but our opinions Mm -hmm. of the directors are very different. So I think what will be fun about this, we have a Siskel and Ebert-like type of discussion sometimes, so that will definitely come up today. Um, But we will try to find common ground on these movies. This was also pitched to us a while ago, like this concept as an eat your vegetables. So that was coming from one of our listeners, The Futurist, where we had to pick movies that might be good for the other person to watch because they're out of their comfort zone or by a director that isn't necessarily their cup of tea. Um, But we can, yeah, definitely get into that and get into our fun letterboxed related games that we'll play at the end. We haven't done any mini games in a while. Cue meme of that lady from, is it Wife Swap? Where she like throws up the broccoli. (laughs) (laughs) Literally me. I like hate and love that you use wife swap because I just thought of the little kid in wife swap when he's like, chicken nuggets are good for me. <laughs> and you know, maybe that's right. Maybe we should just stick with our junk food that we like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can get into your pick first, which was Prisoners from 2013. So description here, when Keller Dover's daughter and her friend go missing, He takes matters into his own hands as the police pursue multiple leads and the pressure mounts. But just how far will this desperate father go to protect his family? It's directed by Denis Villeneuve, stars Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal, Paul Dano, Melissa Leo, Viola Davis, and Terrence Howard, and more. This cast was incredible. It was nominated for one Oscar for Best Cinematography for Roger Deakins. So I think I chose this movie for you. One, because you said you hadn't finished it, and I love Dany, but I do like where this movie goes, and looking back now, now that I've seen a lot of Dany's filmography since 2013, I think before this he only had Polytechnique and Ensemble, which I also like, but this kind of reaffirms what kind of a filmmaker he is, and I was hoping you would like this. It's almost rudimentary at times, but I think the backbone for his type of filmmaking is so apparent here, and that's why I really loved him and wanted you to see this movie. So I hope you liked it. What did you think? To start, just what the way that I feel about Denis Villeneuve's filmography. For me, I struggle with filmmakers who leave you very cold. Like I am a very emotional movie watcher. Not in the sense that I cry every time I watch movies, but I like that filmmaking as an art form pulls you in sometimes to connect with it. And that's what I love the most. And I feel like 
a lot of times with his films, they don't pull me in. They push me away. They keep me at a distance, whether that is the overly black and gray color palette that he uses or the focus on world building over characters. So sometimes I would say like that's where my distance with Denis Villeneuve comes in. I do love Blade Runner 2049, weirdly. Like that is a Denis Villeneuve film that I really, really enjoyed. This is somewhere in the middle for me in his filmography. It is nowhere near how I felt about Ansandis, which is like, please take me off this planet right now. I can't watch this. This is an act of great suffering. I think this movie, the problem I had with it or like where my struggle came in was that it was a slow burn with none of the burn. It was just all slow. And I love slow movies, but because it didn't have anything pulling me in to connect with the characters, I kept checking over and over again to see how much time had passed. 45 minutes, an hour and 10 minutes, an hour and 45 minutes. Like it just kept going and going. And it was sort of like watching an ice cube melt. That's how I would describe watching this movie for me. I do think there are some really strong performances. I love Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie. I feel like he was excellent as this cop. And the problem, though, with him being in it for me was that it made me think of Zodiac, which is a highly superior crime thriller to me that has a similar slow quality to it. It's just far more precise, I would say. And again, I don't know what it is necessarily, but there's something where if you have a movie about children getting abducted, and parents suffering, and a father like on this quest to find his child, there's absolutely no reason why I shouldn't care about these characters, but I just didn't. Like, it was just so cold, cold, cold to me. But again, performances, I thought Paul Dano was great here, and I thought that his character was really sad, and I love the reveal. I thought the ending was great, specifically the final shot and the sound work at the end. I loved. I thought that was... That was excellent. I think I have trouble with the like Denis Villeneuve, Christopher Nolan thing where their movies are set up like riddles, but the script is overwrought and doesn't leave enough trust in the audience to put the pieces together. And it feels like you're just watching a big, long riddle. And I don't know. I like when films aren't constructed to be riddles, like Mulholland Drive, for instance. It's just something you feel. I think I prefer that than when something is like, Here's a puzzle. Solve it to get to the end. And it takes so long that by the end, you're just like, okay, that's it. That's kind of how I I feel. But I didn't hate it. No, like not by any means. I didn't hate it. But I have to ask you, and I, I went into a lot just there so you can pick up on anything I said. But do you think Hugh Jackman is good in this movie? He's annoying for sure. It's the hardest part to sustain yourself through this movie Mm -hmm. because he is acting at a 10 the entire time. And it's the reason why Paul Dano's character shuts off. And it's like, if only he realized this and calmed down, like I understand he's this bereaved father and he's trying to find his daughter, but yelling every single second just annoys the audience. Like that's my one problem with this movie is dealing with him. (laughs) Yeah, it was like a more intense version of Sean Penn and Mystic River. Where he's like, is that my daughter in yeah. there? But the whole time cranked up to a 20. And I was like, do yeah. we need this? Because I also feel like with, with the way that the film looks, it doesn't call for that. Like it feels very mismatched. Like if you think of like other performances where you could say the person is overacting, like 
Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood. That movie calls for that, so it works. But here, Mm -hmm. everything is so drab and barren that when (laughs) it's like Hugh Jackman just screaming the entire time, I'm like, I I Mm -hmm. need a minute. Let's get Viola back here. Let's get Jake back here. Paul Dano. Like, I just need someone else. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there are definitely moments when it calls for it, and that's fine. And I love the sound work, like you mentioned. You can, like, hear his screams echo throughout the building where they're at. And I love how they play with that. Lots of other moments. Obviously, the sound in the end. Oh, that's that's so creepy. It, like, the ending is really good. I think this was different for me on rewatch. I don't know if I had before this, but I definitely picked up on all the clues throughout, which I love. And that's what I love about Nolan. It's like, I love the inception of it, trying to figure things out the whole time. Love a good mystery. I don't know if he was spoon feeding us because even when I read after the movie about what happened, I was like, oh, I did not realize that. Uh But it like all of the puzzle pieces fit after I read that, I was like, okay, yes, here we go. And that's why he had the necklace on. And oh, yeah. And like the maze, the puzzle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And them as kids that were abducted themselves, like that whole part. So I felt like everything came full circle very well. I thought I remembered the ending being much darker, like where they throw Hugh. Mm hmm is a maze itself and that's where they have to get out of. I don't know how this was nine years ago. I don't know why my mind transformed this movie into something else. But... I thought that's where it was going, sort of. Like that's uh-huh. that's kind of what I imagined. Like he had a flashlight. He had to solve this maze that was quote unquote unsolvable from what they had said earlier in the police station. But still like there's hope. But then also he was talking to the wife of the hospital and she's like, he's going to jail, isn't he? Mm-hmm. So it's like he might survive, but he might lose his leg and he might go to jail. And I kind of love those endings where it's, you know, it's not all happy go lucky, but there's hope when they title card before he's actually found. I liked that final shot on Jake. Yeah, I think the most successful part is that realization when you learn that Keller is doing to Alex, ultimately, because he's a he's an adult now, but he was an abducted child. When you see that he's doing that to him, there is this moment that snaps into place for you where you're like, oh, this man is doing what he fears this man is doing to an abducted child, right? So it's like this weird, like, there's this layered element to it that I do think is really, really dark and also successful in the script. That is why it works as a morality tale. It is like very, it's a humorless, serious movie. I do think that the parts that are humorous to me, I guess, aren't supposed to be. So, like, the Our Father worked into the script. I'm like, we please, mm. like, we do not need this. Him praying in there, like, that was a lot for me. But, yeah, I'm, I don't know. I feel like not to be like, his movies don't work for me because I'm open to everything. But I think that it makes sense in a way because, like, you're a science person and I'm a humanities person. Why, like, you would like movies that are like this with the riddles that you can solve, with Mm -hmm. clear explanations that are out there to find. And I like things that are, like, very ambiguous with no clear answer (laughs) that you have to, you have to analyze. It's just a different way of thinking. So I, I, I don't know. I think it makes sense. Denis is sort of more of, like, a scientist. It's literally these two movies. 
Also, I think the score really works here mm-hmm. by Johan Johansson. Discordant, these feelings of distrust and disgust. You're like trudging through the woods, this mystery. Loved mm-hmm. that. Also, to see some of his collaborations come back, like David Desmalchian from Dune, who plays an equally creepy character. Roger Deakins did such an incredible job here on a movie that didn't really call for amazing cinematography. This is a character-driven story, also somewhat by the plot, but some of these shots are just fantastic. From inside when Alex is being held and you just see his eye through that peephole, ugh, and and it's all bloodied and swollen. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I totally interpreted that as a modern-day homage to Hitchcock, um, specifically to Psycho, with that eye and... I think that the cinematography is stunning. I love Deacons. I would put this in the top tier, actually, of his filmography. I mean, I personally would have given Deacons a win here over 1917. Another shot I really loved was the tracking shot over the water. Mm -hmm. goes under the bridge, over the waterfall. Again, playing with sound and this rushing crescendo symbolizing the drama going on. It was great. And as to where this fits into Dini's filmography, for me, it's probably in the lower tier. Do you have a ranking? I probably should. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Um, I mean, he doesn't have as many movies. He doesn't have that many, yeah. yeah. And that's not because I think it's bad. You just think the other ones are that good. Of course. (laughs) The way this came out was interesting, too. So Enemy was supposed to come out before this, but Mm -hmm. Prisoners ended up being the first american-made film by denis and this is what audiences in the states saw first i mean not many i had seen on sunday i think in an art theater in cleveland but nobody else did Mm -hmm. so this was like the largest and speaking of box office this made like 120 million which is crazy yeah because while it doesn't feel like an indie film It is definitely not one that I think would have done that well. But anyway, so Prisoners came out before Enemy. That is much more a smaller film. One, I would really be curious to see what you think because it is more ambiguous. I liked Enemy. Um, So I was just going to say, so I always get a lot of his movies confused because they look similar (laughs) and they use a lot of the same actors. So the other Jake Mm -hmm. Gyllenhaal, it's more ambiguous. I love anytime there's like doubles in a movie. I really love mm. that. That ending is just, wow. I remember feeling that ending incredible. But yeah, much more obscure film you have to decipher. I'm going to say lower tier just because Sicario is an incredibly beautiful film. So is Arrival. Obviously, Dune might be number one. Really? Okay. Kind of has to be, right? I mean, Blade Runner's up there, but I haven't rewatched that. So I feel like I okay. need to at some point. What about Arrival? Where are you on Arrival? It's like a hard movie to rate for me. Really? Because people love it so much. Yeah. And I have some issues with that explanation at the end, but I'm trying to come around. I need to keep rewatching it to... I mean, we can do it at some point, but you don't (laughs) like that it's explained or you don't like how it's explained? I don't like the sci-fi of it. It's like she has special powers right or it's like this alien thing that she can turn back and i didn't really like that because a lot of most of his movies are grounded in reality or a reality i mean obviously dune is not (laughs) in blade runners in the future but that seemed a little 
bit too far-fetched for me and i wanted it grounded because like this alien spaceship coming to Uh earth is something that could you know happens a lot in movies and Mm -hmm. we think about a lot but then yeah the like cyclical nature of it i liked but it was like "Mm, i don't know i mean people people love arrival people love his movies they're just very solemn to me and i always like want a little more fun like i do i do like when movies are grounded in reality i like when they're about real life and real characters but i'm probably due for an arrival rewatch too i saw sicario with friend of the pod ryan lamb and i cannot tell you a single thing that happens in that movie so oh no <laughs> so maybe i need Dang, to rewatch that done too phil Neuve retro yeah when dune part two comes out we can do that oh yeah yeah i'll tell you now we can do it i mean sicario is by deacons as well beautiful beautiful okay i do remember loving the cinematography of sicario yeah i just all of his movies to me are just like kind of cruel i'm okay with that (laughs) yeah i mean again a little disturbed different people like different movies and people can come to our show for very different perspectives that's good so if you could give this movie one oscar what would it be i would give roger deakins cinematography easily Um, I thought it was the standout component of the movie. And if I recommend Prisoners to someone, it's because of the way that it looks. All Deacons. And I think it's in the, again, like top half, at least in Deacons filmography. What about you? I would agree. The fact that Deacons didn't win until 2019 is absurd. Mm -hmm. So to give it to him six years prior, let's do it. And this year, oh boy. I mean, the other star cinematographer one Lubezki for gravity little teaser of what's to come next week so (laughs) that is rough Mm -hmm. but it is an interesting discussion of like the cg of it all but yes give deacons his oscar talk about a good cinematography year 15 the revenant the hateful eight those two can go but carol mad max Fury road sicario Ooh. okay let's move on to my dreamy bizarre favorite movie three women the robert altman film from 1977 description here an awkward young teen working at a spa becomes overly attached to her fellow worker a lonely outcast they hang out at a bar owned by a strange pregnant artist and her has-been cowboy husband amid emotional crises the three women steal and trade one another's personalities I will say, just to start, no description of this movie will suffice. And anything that we say today probably will not do the movie justice. So please just watch it and experience all of the vibes for yourself. Like I said, this was directed by Robert Altman and it stars Shelley Duvall, Sissy Spacek, and Janice Rule as our three women. It was not nominated for any Oscars, despite Altman having a lot of success with Oscar nominations in the 70s and Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek having some success with Critics Awards and even getting a BAFTA nomination in Shelley Duvall's case for Best Actress, but again, not nominated for any Oscars. So... The reason I gave you this one is because I know you struggle with the 70s in particular, and I do think this is one of the greatest American films of the 70s. It's completely ahead of its time. It cements Altman as one of the greats, but it's very, very different from other Altman films. It doesn't feel like him if you think of what comes before in his filmography. Like if you look at Nashville, if you look at Brewster McCloud, if you look at MASH, This is not a movie that you would think would come from that director. 
I mean, it has some signature Altman-like qualities that we can definitely get to, but I picked it because you like some avant-garde films, and this is definitely his most avant-garde. And it's about women, it's not a Western, it's not about musicians, country music, so I figured, like, this could be a safer bet. But it is very odd, so, and leaves a lot of questions open, which I know isn't always ideal for you. So what, yeah, what did you think watching it? I was confused. Good. So perplexed by what was happening. There were just the most oddball things being shown on screen. But the one thing that started when we're in that pool, whatever, like retirement center rehab facility, was realizing that the year prior to this, we get Sissy Spacek and Carrie. Mm-hmm. And like that is what was firmly planted in my mind watching this because it is so scary. Like to pick her after that movie. Yeah. And obviously with filming schedules, I'm sure it was before Carrie became such a hit. But this is disturbing on a different level of some like demon charged schoolgirl. <laughs> Which she kind of is in a Demon-charged way. Demon-charged um, schoolgirl. Someone should put that on a poster for Carrie. <laughs> I didn't really know what to make of all of this because it is so dreamlike. I read very briefly about this and Altman said that the entire thing, the casting, the story, everything came to him in a dream. And if I could make movies in my dream, that would be incredible. Yeah. Also, for this to come to you in a dream is messed up, but... I think that actors work really well together. We go through so many iterations. Well, I think like three. Yeah. Of these women having different lives and changing names and becoming one another. That, like you said during Prisoners, like I want things a little bit more explained instead of ending the movie on a shot of a pile of used tires. That's fair. I I understand that. But I think also with your explanation of prisoners or how you felt about it, like, I didn't hate this. I'm just like, what did I just watch? But I think parts were interesting and there were a lot of funny moments. It's really funny. The the humor (laughs) is, again, it's not like a funny movie. Right. But there is so much humor in the dialogue and the actions between Millie and Pinky and just the scenarios it's so bizarre i mean again another part i didn't understand were all the creatures that she's drawing she's just like traumatized wife the ending oh my god so hard to watch but an interesting choice by you so recently this has become my favorite altman movie when i watched it for the first time i was like total i was completely knocked out by it where i thought okay he is not only weirdly a child of Hitchcock bringing that name up again but also a contemporary of Bergman of Lynch like it just it just feels like a such a weird pivot for him but one that I really appreciated because it is just a technical marvel and it's clear that he let the actors make so many weird decisions and it feels like a dream because of the colors because of the mood because of how strange it is but it also feels like a dream because it almost it sort of feels like they're making it up as they go. And that's something that I really respond to where it just kind of meanders and you don't really know where you're going. And then all of a sudden at the end, it's like, boom, this is about the horrors of being a woman. And 
for a man to make that is very strange. Like, I, I'm always sort of floored when men make movies that are very, very prescient about womanhood, very biting about how women are viewed by men. It's, yeah, I thought, I think it's just amazing. So this was a magical watch for me because it was my third time watching Three Women, so it feels, like, very powerful, like I'm complete. Um, there are certainly still questions that I have, and I love that. I love returning to movies. I love rewatching them. I feel like great movies you should be able to rewatch and get something new out of every time. Like going up to your favorite painting, it can be a different experience based on the mood that you're in when you're watching. And you mentioned this came to Altman in a dream. And I think what's What's interesting, too, is that it came to him at a difficult point in his life, really. His wife got really sick. He took her to the hospital. He went home to his son, and then he had this dream that he titled the movie Three Women. It took place in the desert, and they cast Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek. In his dreams, he would sort of have these lucid dreams where he would wake up and write down notes from the movie, but then he would actually wake up and realize he didn't write anything down. So it was just this like really strange process that he had with these dreams. And Mm -hmm. the only thing he dreamt about it plot wise was that it had to do with personality theft. He pitched that idea to Fox. He had a five film deal with Fox at the time, which is also just crazy that a giant studio like 20th Century Fox would be like, here, Altman, make five Mm -hmm. movies. They can be about whatever you want. And... He just pitched them the title, Three Women, with the basics of the plot. And what followed was this, like you said, bizarre, dreamlike story of these women. And it is very funny. I agree. What I like about it, too, is that the way that it opens at this spa with these blues. You could also write an entire essay on color theory in this movie about the purples, the yellows, the blues. But we open with water, with these young women helping elderly people at this spa. Altman found this location very early on in shooting. And what is beautiful and scary about this is the way that throughout the movie, water is connected with femininity and womanhood and maternity specifically. So if you think about like a baby being in like amniotic fluid the sounds of an ultrasound, water is very feminine. And then when we leave that spa, when we're pushed out of that spa and we see where Millie lives, we see where Pinky goes to live with her, we go to this bar, it's all just desert. It's dry. We don't have that water anymore. And that I've always taken to be as the sign of masculinity, of the fear that's out there, of the contrast between these two women really I do think while it's called three women this is very beguiling and deceptive at times because it's really a character study between these two at first between Millie and Pinky but our third woman really does come into play as sort of this watchful character who it's important to know also is pregnant and our water that we get at the beginning of the film like she's painting these bizarre demon-like womanly creatures on this pool and you're just like why is she doing this and what are these things and you don't really ever know which I love there hasn't been a ton of 
writing on this or podcasting done on three women. So I do hope that people who watch this movie and are maybe looking for answers can find this. But I have to tell you, I do not have all of them. And I love that I don't have all of them. I don't even know if there are answers, which I really appreciate. Even Altman doesn't. Yeah. I know that he has some commentary on the Criterion Mm -hmm. DVD release from a few years ago. I'm not sure when. But even he says, like, I don't know what the answers are. He reads about what people are talking about to see what they think. Because it came to him and this is it. And that's an interesting way to look at it as it's a story he didn't you know, break down every single part into like, what does this mean? And what is what should that function as? It's a a story about women. Mm -hmm. And on the commentary, one thing he said that I loved was that he, you know, after the movie came out later, he would read from critics and people analyzing it when Millie, she's always wearing yellow, which I love for her. Like, that's such a great color to summarize and like depict Millie's sunniness and her extroversion but she she's wearing that yellow dress she gets into her yellow car and she shuts a bit of her skirt in the door you can see it hanging out and Altman said he would always laugh because he would read people saying like this is genius like the meaning of the skirt being shut in the door he's like I just like the way it looked like that's what the character would do You talking about the two women, I thought for most of the movie, it was really about these two women, which is what also got me thinking, like, why is it three women if it's mostly Millie and Pinky the whole time? Yeah, there were some interesting choices with Millie's character. I'm not sure I want to go to a party that has cheese whiz on crackers with chocolate pudding pies as hors d'oeuvres. Wild. A choice. She's always talking about her recipes that she writes down and where she finds them. Mm-hmm. It's really cringe and disappointing to see like how she tries to talk with all of these people, the doctors in the hospital and the apartment complex roommates, I guess. And no one cares. They just mock her or they ignore her, look right through her. Ugh. But, like, that's perfect for Shelley Duvall Mm -hmm. in a way. It is. What I love so much about Millie as a character and about the way that this character was created, Shelley actually wrote a lot of her own dialogue for the movie. Um, Mm. She came up with a lot of it. And I love the way that she talks like she's reading a magazine. Like, her dialogue sounds like she literally memorized something she read in Cosmo or Good Housekeeping or whatever, wherever she's getting her information, she wants so desperately to be able to fit in that she is just, she's constantly talking. Sometimes you hear her voice before you even see her. She's always going on and on and on and on and everyone's ignoring her. It's almost like she's, you turn on the TV for background noise. That's like, that's (laughs) almost how this character feels, which makes her such a sad character, but that's such a way I think that women... At the time, women in the South, um, you can look at like the way that women have been treated and what and what she thinks her purpose is, which is just making other people feel better. She just kind of goes along for the ride. She wants anybody to pay attention to her. And she almost just it's almost like she doesn't notice. But of course, like then you have Pinky, who admires Millie right away. She is always framed in mirrors. I love how we have mirrors and reflections as a motif in the movie, just like gorgeous cinematography and production design. But she, 
yeah, as a follow-up to Carrie, like being predisposed to that, you do think this person is scary or I shouldn't trust this person or like this person is a little green or naive. But when she looks at Millie with these eyes and there's one part where Millie says, you're a little like me, aren't you? And you see this just amazing little grin on Sissy Spacek's face where you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, like here's the person who will listen to Millie. Here's the person who actually thinks that Millie is just as cool as she wants to be. But then Mm -hmm. those little annoyances creep in. Yeah, you're definitely hyper aware of who Sissy Spacek is in this movie. And you talking about that a little bit triggered what I felt when I watched it by the third act, Mm -hmm. if you want to call it that, I started to see the characters differently because Mm -hmm. in that final part, Willie is like this grandmother. Mm -hmm. Millie, the initial Millie, Shelley, is the mother. And also in the second part, Pinky is the daughter. So you start to see a hierarchy, which Mm -hmm. looking back at the beginning, Pinky is infatuated with Millie. She meets her and is like, oh, this is my best friend. It's a little cuckoo, but she's like this younger sister, this toddler daughter to Millie. And Willie, she's painting. She's on her own. She's really not in a lot of the beginning. She doesn't speak much. Like she's just kind of Mm -mm. watching everything. They're just shots to her Mm -hmm. working alone, sleeping in this pool, Mm -hmm. resting. And she is like the grandmother, so it almost is like a three-tier family design between them. I don't know what it means, but I think that helps look at the characters differently. Yeah, thinking of a meaning here, if we think of what the tagline of the movie is, one woman became two, two women became three, three women became one. So it's the way that their experience at the end of the day is all connected to water, all connected to motherhood or mothering caring for another and this masculine threat that invades their lives whether it's the symbolic desert around them or it's edgar this this like cowboy hyper masculine archetype who's there to threaten their existence mm-hmm. um, you can also of course look at guns as phallic symbols you can talk about that always in mafia movies like goodfellas and the godfather of course but here same thing I also think when, so when Pinky has her accident, I'll call it, she falls into Mm -hmm. the pool and gets the concussion. Again, we have water there and that's our first flip when we go to act two, I would say, of the movie. Mm -hmm. Again, all connected via water, which is how we can look at maternity, how we can look at femininity. And I think when you, if you break it down into just kind of the way that you described the way that these women take on different roles by the end. And in the end, they're all together. It makes a little bit more sense. Altman also said that he wanted to make a movie about the ambiguity of lost souls, which I thought was very sad, but also definitely, I think, describes like a a way that women often feel, not just in their social relationships, but in the way that they think about The possibility of motherhood and pregnancy being connected to something, but ultimately like feeling very lost because that thing ultimately like that's something again that's going to leave you. So it's just it's it's really deep. And I also picked it, too, because regardless of whether people like this movie or not, I think there's a lot to like and it's not for everyone. That's for sure. But with everything that's happening in our country in particular right now around 
rights of people who can get pregnant (laughs) and having those rights stripped away from you like this is a really good watch um very timely so it's not like your abortion feature like never really sometimes always are happening but it is definitely a scathing look on what happens to women and motherhood Mm -hmm. on women's rights on yeah that final scene the way that millie was like it's not coming out i think it's too big i'm like oh god yeah that's what you're gonna say i know i know i was like oh it's yeah yeah going back a little bit a quick note on sissy spacex performance i think she does such great work when the flip happens and she you get all these little clues along in the movie that she might steal millie's identity or her personality when she says that her name is Mildred, when we see her copying down Millie's social security information, like that, when we see her copying her social security number, I was like, no, this is like my worst nightmare. And then all of a sudden she's acting totally different. She's doing everything that Millie said she should. She's behaving like Millie, yes, but also with a confidence that Millie never Mm -hmm. had. And this is also something that Millie was sort of shook by i would say early in the movie so we get a shot of sissy like blowing the bubbles in her coke with her straw which is something that little kids do like that's so weird Mm -hmm. and then when she pours the salt into her beer and it like (laughs) bubbles up we get the carbonation and then she chugs it and millie's just staring at her you almost see the sense of awe like you will just do whatever you want to do at any particular time and you don't care what other people think what is that Mm -hmm. like Because Millie doesn't know what that's like. Yeah, Millie is trying to be the woman that she thinks she should be. Mm -hmm. And all those moments from Pinky, I was also so perturbed. Yes. Like, what? Because she bubbles her Coke, looks around, makes sure that nobody saw and does it again. Yes. (laughs) And the way... I I had no idea what was going to happen with this beer because she takes it almost like, oh, you think I'm old enough to be able to drink? And then she spits all the foam off of the top and then chugs it. Just so, so bizarre. So strange. This is definitely a very interesting character study, Mm -hmm. which is something that both of these movies, I think, do somewhat well, at least. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I also just a a couple of shots and like things that I love. I love the way that we get hints throughout that um, Millie hates tomatoes. I found this really interesting on what on rewatch. So she talks about a dream she has. Millie does where we can we can overhear Millie. She's not talking to Pinky, but she talks about a dream where her mother brings her things and she talks about her bringing her tomatoes and how she doesn't like tomatoes. And then later we hear her describing some great recipe she makes with tomatoes. You're like, wait a second. Like, this is clearly an act. So then we get the shot of cocktail sauce on Pinky another tomato product and that all takes place before it gets super dark and later the red the visual red which we don't have a lot of red in the movie it's like very muted spring colors red comes up later but it's blood so that's Mm. like a through line through the movie that i really love it's really cool yeah and then millie being covered with it yes it's like very very dark and shelly duvall's face in that is almost blank Mm -hmm. so If you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would give it to Sissy Spacek. I think this is a great turn after Carrie, and she makes you constantly think throughout this movie. Yes, like in the first part, but then when she becomes this other woman, Mm -hmm. 
you're like, what is happening? And you realize that Sissy is very much in control of who this person is. And it's fun to watch that. What would you give it? I love Sissy Spacek in this. And it's so interesting that she, at this point in her career, if we're thinking of three women, has worked with Malik, De Palma, and Altman. Like, she's really establishing herself as, Jeez, like, a wow. person who will do very dark things in her films. Strange choices, very, yeah, avant-garde in some cases filmmaking. So I really like that about her. But I would give it to, I would give Best Actress to Shelley Duvall. I think that, you know, because Altman gave her a lot of liberties with the script, with creating this character, she's able to really fly above the rest. Um, I do think, I mean, I love Sissy Spacek. I think she's great. But I really love how disconnected Millie feels throughout the movie, even though she's constantly searching for connection. And I feel like that is due to Shelley Duvall's performance And I think without her work in the first two acts of the movie, establishing this character who is always going, the ending doesn't work without that. And I feel like part of the reason why the finale of the movie is so strong for me is because of her performance. But she won Best Actress at Cannes that year, um, which is, you know, amazing. And she was nominated at New York Film Critics Circle. She won at LAFCA. Got the BAFTA nomination, like I said, but was ultimately ignored by Ampess. That year, Diane Keaton won for Annie Hall. I love Diane Keaton. We talk about her frequently. But I think even with the competition, I would still give this to Shelley Duvall. I know Annie Hall is an iconic character, and Diane is great in that movie, but I would give her her Oscar later for Reds. Come back to this again. I know. I always come back to Reds. Well, in terms of critics... That makes me New York and you LA and Cannes. Yeah, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Okay, so I would recommend both of our movies. They're very, very different. Prisoners is on Hulu now. Three Women you do have to rent, but it is worth the $3.99. Or if you want to get the Criterion and take a chance on it, Barnes & Noble is doing the 50% off sale right now, and it is a great buy. Highly recommend. But now we're going to play a new mini game. We haven't done a mini game in a while. This is the letterboxed match game. What we will do is we will read out a prompt where I will say, for example, my top two most watched actors of all time are, and Nick, you will have to guess who they are, and then I will reveal the answer and vice versa. So again, this is based on our letterbox stats. I know that you have Villeneuve's filmography very highly ranked, and I have Altman's filmography very highly ranked. So the letterboxed match game will be very fun. We'll be talking about some from this year, last year, all time. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to try to decipher. Yeah, I think like thinking back to 70s versus this year or like more recent times for me. Yeah, it'll be funny too because... um, I mean, our tastes are so different, but I'm curious Mm -hmm. if we do have any overlap for some of these, even just based on pod watching, pod preparation. Yeah, because this year we did so much of Kate Winslet. I feel like this might skew from (laughs) this theme in Al Pacino. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you read the first one. I'll I'll go first. The first one is my top two most watched actors of all time. (laughs) I... I'm curious if they're male or female. Mm-hmm. Also, I kind of want to say I'll go one and one maybe. Okay. I'll say Betty Davis and Al Pacino. Okay. Jack Nicholson is a close second. Okay. So 
my number one most watched actor of all time is Willem Dafoe. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. With 20 films logged on Letterboxd. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Which is crazy. And my second one is Meryl Streep with 18. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I think too with Letterboxd, it's like there could be another answer, I suppose. Like I haven't logged every movie I've ever watched on Letterboxd. This is basically the last it's like 2019 to now Mm -hmm. yeah okay for you i might do one and one too um i'm gonna say meryl and tom hanks (laughs) okay you got tom really wait that's (laughs) so funny that he's in there for you (laughs) meryl and willem for me both are at 13 okay and i my numbers don't go as high as yours but tom is with 14 and with 15 is Samuel L. Jackson. That's so funny. You must have just logged a lot of Tarantino, too, I feel. Yeah. I have a lot at 13. Al Pacino's at 13. Cate Blanchett. Tony Collette. So okay. they're all in that range. Okay, next one is my top two actors of 2022 are... So I guess first for you now. Okay. I'm going to say Kate Winslet because we did that retro on her very recently. And... <laughs> This is really hard. I guess just Al Pacino. I would pick both of them because we did filmography episodes on them. Okay, fine. You win. Oh, good. Okay. Those are both right. Okay. I would probably say Al Pacino for sure. Uh Uh-huh. But this isn't just 2022 movies. Right. It's just in the year 2022. I really think it'll be somebody from like classic Hollywood that I'm not going to get. (laughs) Um... Is it Greer Garson? It is Greer Garson. Oh my god! Congratulations, you're two for two. I've watched six Greer Garson films and six Al Pacino films. What a year! Wow. Okay, that was I'm great. so impressed with you. Wow. Um, okay, my top two highest rated actors of 2022 are. This is weird. So I'll tell you, there are a lot that have five star ratings. Because, specifically, I watched two movies, this is your big hint, with all of these people. This is The Godfather. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's mine, too. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like Diane Keaton. It's literally all of them. John Cazale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. John Cazale and Abe Vigoda are mine. (laughs) You would never have gotten that. No. But they all have have 4.5, literally the entire cast. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, next up, my top rated decade is... And if yours is not the 70s, then I'll be shook. That's my second highest rated decade. Wow. Yeah. If you want to guess another, Crazy. or I can just tell you. Is it older or more recent? Older. 50s. 1950s. Amazing. Yeah. For you, okay, I'm going to go more recent. I feel like you've had a lot of 80s movies you've liked recently. Because you did like Amadeus, The Big Chill. I would say 80s. Mm-hmm. It's number two. Oh, 90s? I'm a 90s baby. Okay. I'm a 50s baby. (laughs) I don't know if these are ranked, Uh but my highest of what it shows is 10 Things I Hate About You, A League of Their Own, The Insider, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia. Mm. Okay. The PTA in there too helps. Mm -hmm. My top row for the 50s, I have, oh my God, these are just great. Wow. Whoo, the 50s, great decade. I have North by Northwest, A Place in the Sun, Roman Holiday, Sunset Boulevard, All About Eve, Vertigo, wow, wow. 12 Angry Men, Rear Window, oh, 
That's why the 70s were dethroned. My top row of 70s movies, though, is funny because I have three women, Harold and Maude, the company cast recording, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> which is five stars, obviously. Halloween and The Exorcist. A nice mix. Yeah, lots wow. of good ones. Okay, this one's actually very funny, too. My top two most watched directors of all time are... Okay, I'm trying to think someone with, like, a big filmography. Okay, for you, I'm going to do Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg. You got Scorsese. Okay. My other one is Fincher. Oh, that was going to be my other guess. Who's actually number one with 11 and Scorsese at nine. Okay. For you, I'm going to go with PTA. What about Hitchcock? So Hitchcock and PTA are tied for me with 10. So they're tied for second. So you got PTA and Hitchcock technically. Okay. Yeah. Is it Scorsese? It is. 19 Scorsese movies. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. I'm behind. It's very high. Um, I'm planning on doing a full rewatch or at least filling in the ones I've missed this year before Killers mm. of the Flower Moon. I sound like such a film bro, though. I'm so annoyed with myself. PTA and Scorsese. <laughs> like, I need some variety in here. <laughs> Let's do highest rated, too. Yeah. Okay. So my top two highest rated directors of all time. Well, I wonder if Robert Redford is, I don't know if. It's a cop out or not, but I'll try him. And like, if somebody has one movie and it's really high, then that's mm-hmm. kind of easy. But I know he has more. Oh my god, I have no idea. I can't even guess. Like Jane Campion. No. Mm-mm. I have no. Okay, so I have three directors. Actually, I have three where everything I've given them that they've made so far has been five stars. At least what I've watched in the time that I've had Letterboxed. One has been canceled. One is incredible. Like, I can't wait to do an episode on him. And the other one has only made two features. But both were fives for me. Mel Gibson? (gasps) Mel Gibson? (laughs) No, Roman Polanski. Oh, okay. Yeah, Roman Polanski. That's fair. So I've given Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby, and Repulsion all five stars. Uh, Barry Jenkins? Is he the one with two? Yep. Okay. Barry and... Billy Wilder. Oh. Yeah. I like that. Hmm. Interesting. That's a good mix, though. Um, so mine, I have five tied for first place at 4.8. Okay. For you, Damien Chazelle, La La Land, and Whiplash at least. Yes. Okay. Um, It's hard, because I feel like yours are probably newer-ish. Greta? Yes, it's number two. She's definitely, she, I mean, she's one of my highest ones too. So I'm trying to think of like what I had also. <laughs> Denis Villeneuve? No. Uh, I'll tell you my 4.5s working up. Okay. <clears throat> Not that this helps in any way, but Ari Aster, Terrence Malick, Mike Mills. Malick was going to be my next guess. And then Josh and Benny Safdie. Um, but you're in the same realm with Damien and Greta. There's one more there that you could guess. Barry? No. Noah. Yes. Noah Baumbach. Okay. Marriage like, Story and Francis Ha. Yeah. Oh. Who's the other one? So the other two are our next week's episode and Milos Forman. Oh, okay. That's great. Yeah, Milos Forman doesn't really miss either. My lowest rated film of 2022 is... <sighs> Love this. Okay, wait. Something you watched this year. You We watched Don't Look Up in 2021, so it can't be that. Mm-hmm. 
I'm surprised I don't have any half stars. Is it one of your short films that one of the short films that we watched no, for the Oscars? Because no. <laughs> I was like, is it the dress? <laughs> it is from Oscar season. Spencer. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> My next Got guess it. was going to be that short, the windshield wiper. <laughs> so, the windshield wiper, affairs of the art, and the dress all have one and a half stars. All right, you guess for me now. Okay, what's the rating? Is it half star? No, one star. Oh, no. I have to just guess Elvis. No, it's not Elvis. <gasps> wow. I have two films that are tied, my lowest rating of the year, at one star, and both are 2022 films. And it can't be the black phone. It's not the black phone. Neither of them will make an impression on Academy voters. Was it some, like, Netflix movie? No, it's not a Netflix movie. So one was on Hulu and one was um, a movie I saw in theaters. Was it Fresh? Yes, that's one of them. Good job. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I (gasps) could not stand that movie. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one is kind of similar in a way, just like with the way I hated it. It's like another horror adjacent film. Adjacent? Not Scream. Mm-mm. No, I liked Scream. I have no idea. Alex Garland's Men. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Okay. Ugh. Yeah. One I do I not recommend. Seeing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. My highest rated film of 2021 is... Okay. So your highest rated film of 2021 that was released in 2021 is definitely Dune. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Is Licorice Pizza your top? Yeah, I have four movies I gave five stars to. Licorice Pizza, The Power of the Dog, Annette, and The Souvenir Part (laughs) 2. Okay. Power of the Dog would have been the easier choice. Yeah. But Licorice Pizza is right. We'll also bring back the Letterboxd Deal Breakers game at some point, um, probably on an episode very soon when we do our next Letterboxd movie trade, which we can spoil, is going to be a performance-related episode. We'll do... Um, Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and Bob Fosse's All That Jazz, which will be very fun. Yeah, I love The Red Shoes, so I'm excited to watch All That Jazz. Yeah, oh, both are five-star movies for me, so that'll be a fun one. But next time on Oscar Wilde, we're doing a fun spin on our They Won for That series, where we're going to actually talk about a director this time. We're going to talk about Alfonso Cuaron. And that is because I can announce to the world that I do not love Gravity. And I haven't actually seen it since it came out, so this will force me to revisit it. So Alfonso Cuaron has two Best Director wins, one for Gravity, one for Roma. And we're going to decide if, based on his filmography, those two movies are the ones. And I can tell everyone now I am going to be talking about Children of Men because I love Children of Men. An incredible movie. He also has two other Oscars for editing for Gravity and cinematography for Roma. Crazy. Which is a very cool stat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to talk about him. So if you'd like to play along, let us know what you would choose as his worthy Oscar if you would give it to something other than Gravity or Roma. He has quite a few movies, some very, very good ones. So I'm excited to talk about him. Mm -hmm. So if you liked our pod... 
feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.